The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. This chapter, 1 Peter, has been, um, as we've, we've dis- discussed, really just a study of salvation. I mean, we've, we've looked at all sorts of different aspects of salvation. And we've, we've, we've gone pretty you know, deeply into some, some theological parts of, of salvation. Uh, how salvation comes about, what salvation does, um, you know, all of those things we've, we've talked about as we've, we've moved through these first uh, 16 or so verses of First Peter. Last week, we began um, a, a shift in this study of salvation. The first 12 verses uh, really have been more uh, theology, more doctrine of salvation. Then starting in verse 13, we saw Peter shift now from the, the doctrine or the theology of salvation to more the application of salvation. So now that we're saved, because we've been called, because we've been chosen, because we've been born again, because we've received the grace of God, um, because we've been made children of God, then this is now how we should live. And that's, that's pretty much the rest of this letter. We started last week in verse 13, uh, Peter highlighting two main changes that happen when we are saved, that we are called to live certain ways. And um, the, the thrust of that last week was that we're called to live with hope and we're called to live with holiness. Now that we've been born again, now that we've been saved, we've experienced the grace of God, God calls us to live a life marked by hope and marked by holiness. Those are the, the first two points. Today, we're going to look at um, this, this third mark of salvation, this third application of salvation, that we are called to live in fear. In fear. Probably better stated, in an appropriate fear of God. We are called to live in an appropriate fear of God. There are many opinions about what it means to fear God. Some hear that language of fearing God and they believe that it means that you should fear God because He could at at any minute take you out. I mean, at any minute, if He decided He could end you, take you from this earth. Now, that is certainly true. God is is the author of of life and and death. But that's certainly not the only thing that it means to live in the fear of God. And and I believe that's probably not even the Bible's thrust of, of what it means to fear God. Some would say that to fear God is to just to have um, a reverential fear, an awe of God. That to, to live a life in the fear of God means that you, you stand in awe of, of God. And that's certainly right. And you see that through the scriptures. Sometimes we have a hard time understanding what that means and how to apply that. And you, you see it applied in, in different ways. You, you could hear 
that you should have a, such a holy reverential fear of God and all of God, so much so that you should never wear a hat in church. And that's how they would take it. You have a fear of God, you don't wear a hat in church. Now, I'm not going to wear a hat in church. I don't think it's, it's great to wear hats in church, but I don't necessarily think that wearing a hat in church is tied to the fear of God. But a lot of people will, will um, make those connections. My hope this morning is that through this text, we can dive a little deeper and to get a, a more full picture of what it is to conduct ourselves to live a life with fear, as the text says. What does that mean? What does that look like? Here's the way Peter says it in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter begins with this phrase, and if you call on him as father. This is um, a, a rhetorical question. It's a, it's a question that's asked where the answer is, is already known. Probably better translated, this would read, since you call on God as Father. Since you call on God as Father. We, we know that, that who Peter's writing to already calls on God as, as Father. Peter's not saying, well, if you do, but Peter's saying, because you do. Because you call on God as Father, then live this way. That's, that's Peter's point. Now, we can read this and we could fly past this phrase as just some introductory phrase. And if you call on God as Father or since you call on God as Father and we can move on from it. But what I would like to do is to stop and to think on this for just a, a second. First, Peter's already used the theme of of parents, of a father and children. This is already a theme that, that Peter is, has been using. We saw it last week, as a matter of fact, as we're called in um, verse 14, obedient children. Obedient children. And if you were here last week or listened to the, the message last week, you, you might remember that this, this really means... Children of obedience. That when, when Peter says you are uh, a child of obedience or obedient children, what, what Peter is, is saying is that your character is one of obedience to God. That's the way that phrase is used throughout the Bible. You see it regularly used in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. As, a, as the writers of the Scriptures want to speak to the character of a person, they call that person a child of something, either a, a child of disobedience or a, a, a child of wrath or a child of obedience. Th this is saying that your character is marked in such a way that you're, you're the offspring of, of that thing. This is what Peter's saying, that we, as being born again to a living hope, we have, have now had a, a change in our character so that we are now no longer a child of wrath, 
That's the scriptures call those who are outside of God's grace. But now we're a child of obedience. We're, we're marked by obedience. That's what it means. To call on God as our Father means that we are children of obedience. We're children of obedience. The second thing is it, it means that we, we are a child of God. We are a child of, of God, a, a child of obedience. To be a child of obedience means that you desire to live like your father. To call on God as your father means that you have a desire to live like your father. We've been born again to a living hope. We've been changed. Our character's been changed. Our nature's been changed. We have been adopted as, as sons and daughters. And now we're called by God and should be driven by the Holy Spirit to live like our Father. That's the natural inclination of a child. That's especially the natural inclination of a son. They want to be like their dad. And to call on God as our Father means that we should desire to live like Him. What does that mean? That means we should live a life of holiness, right? Be holy because I'm holy, Peter says. And I'm your Father. And my character, my nature, my being is a being of holiness. Therefore, you be holy because I, your Father, am holy and you should desire to be like your Father. A third thing that this, this means to me is that the God of the universe, who is completely righteous and holy, according to His grace, has chosen me for adoption when we deserved nothing but punishment and wrath. See, we can fly by this that says, since you call on God as Father, and we can lose the weight of what that actually means. That the God of the universe, the holy, righteous one, has, according to his grace, called me out of my sin, adopted me into his family, and made me a son. I'm a child of God. This is what Paul means in Romans 8. Starting in verse 14, when he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. God has according to His grace, not because of anything we've done, not because of anything we deserved, but simply because of His grace and His mercy and His loving kindness has called us to be adopted as His sons. And now, being His children, sons and daughters, not only do we have the Spirit in us that enables us to cry out to Abba Father, but we're now made heirs, joint heirs of Jesus Christ to receive glory that's due Him not do us. That's what it means to call on God as our Father. Isn't it amazing that we can call on Him as Father? This is amazing. This is unbelievable. Isn't it amazing that He loves us 
unconditionally. And that our relationship with him, because of his grace, as an approachable father, causes us to live with appropriate fear of him. That's, that's Peter's point. Since you call on God as Father, conduct yourselves with fear. Because you now can call on God and you are now in a relationship with God where He is an accessible Father, you should now live your lives marked by an appropriate fear of Him. Why? Because just as an earthly father should, this unconditional love comes with righteous, loving discipline. Yes, we're the child of God. Yes, we're adopted into the family of God. Yes, we're joint heirs with Christ. Yes, God loves us unconditionally. But just as an earthly father's unconditional love should come with loving discipline. So does God's unconditional love come with loving discipline. This is what Peter means when he says, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now, what is clear from this is that God is, has always been, and forever will be an impartial judge. God as our heavenly father is not like an earthly judge. Because an earthly judge can be bribed, right? An earthly judge can, can rule out of bias. An earthly judge can be overcome by emotion. An earthly judge can get faulty information and rule off faulty information. Our God can do none of those things. He cannot be bribed. What in the world would you bribe him with? He cannot receive faulty information. He knows every aspect of us. He does not rule from a bias. God judges impartially, Peter says. This, this phrase impartially, uh, literally translated, is uh, faceless. It's faceless. It means that, that God judges not according to our faces. Not according to outward appearance. Not out of favoritism. He is not fooled. He sees... Clearly. Peter says, since you call on him as father, and he, as father, judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now, maybe you read this because I read, I read this and I look at this and I go, well, what is this? What is this judgment that, that God is, is judging that's according to our deeds. Because we, we're taught, and rightly so, and I hope you believe this, because it is absolutely true, 
And quite frankly, I'm, I'm banking on the fact that God is not judging me according to my deeds, but He is judging me according to my faith. Right? Like, I'm banking on that. I, I believe the Scriptures tell us that if we are in Christ, there is no condemnation. That's Romans 8.1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means when I stand before God as an impartial judge, He will not condemn me because I am in Christ. So, what is this judgment? This impartial judgment that comes according to our deeds. Well, I'll tell you what it isn't. This is not the separation of Christians and non-Christians. That is not this judgment. God is not separating Christians and non-Christians based on their deeds. That judgment will come. That is not the judgment Peter's talking about here. Now, how can we know that? We know that because we know who Peter's writing to. Who's he writing to? He's writing to those who call on God as Father. Since you call on God as Father, he's writing to the elect, to the elect exiles. He's writing to believers. So when he writes to believers and says... Since you call on God as, as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. This judgment is not the separation of, of Christians and, and non-Christians. What this means is that there is a judgment, even for Christians, in which God will judge each person according to their deeds, and He will do so impartially so that you cannot fool Him. You see, even though in Christ we've been forgiven of our sins, we must give an account for our lives and for our conduct. We must and we will give an account for how we stewarded what God had given us. You will, even in Christ Jesus, receive a judgment from God that is impartial and that will be according to your deeds. This is what Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when Paul writes, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Here's what that means. That means Peter saying, I'm laying a foundation of Christ Jesus. Other people are coming in. They're, they're building off of this foundation. You're building off of this foundation. There is no foundation other than Jesus Christ. So this is the life of a, of a believer. This is the life of a Christian. That what's being built is your life. It's how your life is being stewarded. It's how your life is being built off of, of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what Peter or Paul means here. here. He goes on to say, Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become manifest. That means it will become clear. It will, become, it will be revealed. For the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. 
And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Here's what that means. Your life built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Your life, your work is is building something that will come before God and will be tested, will be judged, and it will be judged by the righteous fire of God. And if what you built with your life lasts, if it was done for God, if it was a life of obedience, a life of holiness, a life of service, a life of love, then what will remain will be gold and silver and precious stone. But if your life is not marked by those things, Paul calls that hay and stick and stubble. When you stand before the impartial judge and those things are revealed, God's judgment will come and those things will not last. The work that anyone's built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's burn, work is, is burned up, he will suffer loss. Now that's, whew, I read that and I think, man, oh man. But then this last phrase is it's a glorious hope, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. This is the life of a Christian. That one day you will stand before God, your father, the impartial judge, and he will judge your life. And that judgment will determine your reward. And if it all burns up, you're still saved. But only through fire. But if you live a life it's marked by an appropriate fear of God as we, as we see. A life of hope, a life of holiness, a life of fear. Then you'll receive a, a great reward. It's here on this day. In this judgment that God will examine our works. Just because we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ does not mean that we will not stand before God in righteous judgment. Not a judgment for heaven and hell, but a judgment for reward. Paul goes on, 1 Corinthians 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. There is a future judgment that awaits us. That's certainly what Peter has in mind when he says here, since you call on God as Father, who judges impartially, there is a future judgment that awaits us. But not only is there a future judgment that awaits us, there is also present judgment. 
Peter himself says in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That there is a present judgment of God. And this present judgment of God, even on believers, is a judgment that comes in the form of God's loving discipline. To call on God as Father means that you come under the loving discipline of God. This is, this is Hebrews 12, starting in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You see what Paul's saying? Have you forgotten that you call on God as father? That's, that's what that, that phrase means. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Have you forgotten that you can call on God as, as father? The very fact that you can go, call on God as your father means that you have now come under the loving discipline of God. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, there is a present judgment of God that comes in the form of His loving discipline to His children. And because you are now a child of God, then you have come under the loving discipline of God and He does that impartially according to your works. If your works aren't works of holiness, if your works aren't works of, of hope, then God will discipline you. And it seems painful, not pleasant. But it's for our good. It's for our sanctification. It's for our holiness. It's to be made into His image. And God does this out of His love for us. This is, this is what Peter means. And if you call on God as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In light of the judgment of God, because there is an end judgment, because there's a final judgment that comes that will test all that we've done, and because we now, as children of God, live under the discipline of God, in light of all of this, Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear 
throughout the time of your exile. Now, he doesn't say fear of, of God, but that's the implication, right? Conduct yourselves with fear of the one who judges impartially. Because you can't fool him. You can't trick him. You can't bribe him. This is the main point of the text. As aliens in this world, because you have another home awaiting you, and when you get there, you stand in judgment of your deeds. Because you have a new father who disciplines you, live with fear. Peter says, conduct yourselves. This, this phrase, conduct yourselves, really, it's a continuous action. Constantly live this way. You conduct yourselves with fear. Now, what does this mean and what does it look like? What does it mean to fear God? Well, we know what it doesn't mean. This is not the fear of the guilty sinner over the deserved wrath of God. That is not this fear. Don't read that and think that's this fear. The fear of the guilty sinner because of the deserved wrath of God. This is, this is, uh, this is the fear, this is Adam's fear. This is the fear in the garden, right? So Adam and Eve disobey God, they eat of the tree, sin comes into the world, and what do they do? They hide. And God comes looking for them, even though He knows where they are, looking for them, finds them and says, why are you hiding? And what's Adam's response? Because I am afraid. There's this fear of, of God, but it's a, it's a fear of the righteous judgment of sin. That's, that's what Adam's fear is. This is not the kind of fear we live in. This is not the kind of fear we have with God. How do we know that? Because you call on Him as Father. It says, you will not be condemned. But this is a holy reverence a respect, an honoring, a life-changing clarity of what reality really is. That's what it means to fear God. To live a life marked by a holy reverence, a respect, an honor, and in total clarity of what reality really is. You see, in our sin, we're, we're blinded. We don't see life as it really is. We don't see God as He really is. We're blinded. But when we're born again, spiritually, we can see clearly now. And we see things as they really are. And we go from thinking that we're the one in charge, that we're the ultimate authority, that's spiritual blindness, to now, by the grace of God, understanding that God is the one that's in charge and God is the ultimate authority. That's what it means to live in fear, to understand I'm not the one calling the shots, I'm not the one in charge, I'm not the authority. God is. And I will have to stand before him one day. And when he judges, he judges in total and complete righteousness. 
This is Proverbs 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands with you, making your ear attentive to the wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures. This is, this is the, the writer saying, listen, if you are thirsty after truth, if you are desirous of knowing God, if you are searching after that with all that you have, if you're making your ear attentive to the wisdom of God, if you're inclining your heart to understanding the word of God, if you've gone from spiritual blindness to seeing clearly, then, verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. It's being, it's being born again to a living hope, to, to receiving spiritual sight, to see God who, for who He is, to understand who we are, and then to say in reverential, holy, appropriate fear, God, you are the authority and not me, and I must stand before you, and you are holy and purchased, perfect and righteous. This is a, a fear that's the result of new information. It's a life of wisdom. It's a life of wisdom. To live in fear of God means to live a life of, of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It's, it's knowing God. It's seeing God. Understanding who He is. And living out of that a life of wisdom. That's what it means to, to fear God. To fear God is to hate evil. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate, God says. To conduct yourselves with fear during your, your time in exile means that you hate Evil. Now, why do you hate evil? Because you know God who is holy. Because you call on Him as Father. And you're now a child of obedience. To live in fear is to hate evil. If you love evil, if you cozy up with sin, you do not fear God. You do not. The fear of the Lord is life-saving. This is Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. To fear God, to conduct yourselves in a fear of God means that your life will be preserved. It's a fountain of life to fear God. Because to fear the Lord is to walk after Him, to follow His ways. Deuteronomy 13.4 You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. This is the fear of the Lord. If you fear Him, then you keep His commandments, you obey His voice, you serve Him, you hold fast to Him. 
Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And we fear Him because now we know Him and we know that He's holy. Revelation 15, 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Who will not fear the God? Who will not fear Him? Here's the reality. Every single person who's ever lived will fear God. And you will either fear him in this life as you come to know him as your father and you conduct your lives in holiness or you will fear him when you stand before him in righteous judgment. All nations will come and worship him because they will see him for who he is. The Holy One. Listen, the fear of God is necessary for a life of worship and service to God. Psalm 5, 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. That that worship is marked by a fear of God. A holy, reverential fear of God. Seeing God for who He is, knowing who we are, and coming to Him in appropriate fear. That's how we worship God. That's not to say that fear and joy can't be together. They certainly are. But our worship of Him comes out of a fear of Him. Because you can't worship that which you do not know. And once you know Him, you see Him as holy, the natural response is then to to fear Him. This is a lot of my problem with modern worship. Expressed in a lot of churches that there, there is no holy, reverent fear of God. Because when you're just singing about yourself, you're not seeing Him. But you can't worship Him if you don't fear Him. Psalm 89, 6 and 7. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. That's also translated in the assembly of the saints. And awesome above all who are around him. God is to be greatly feared in the assembly of the saints. Hebrews 12. Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That's fear. For our God is a consuming fire. That's His judgment. You can't worship God. You can't live a life in service to God without a fear of God. You cannot please God without fearing God. Psalm 147.10 His delight is not in the strength of the horse 
nor his pleasure in the legs of man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. I love the fact that the psalmist ties together fear and hope, fear and love. Those are not mutually exclusive things in the kingdom of God. They might be in our sinful world. They are not in the kingdom of God. To fear God is to hope in God. To fear God is to love God. It's to call on Him as Father. Acts 10, 35. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Psalm 103, 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Listen, church, I could go on and on and on and on about the fear of the Lord, but hopefully you get the picture. The fear of the Lord is necessary in life, in all aspects of your life, for your whole life. That's what Peter means when he says, conduct yourselves, that's every part of your life, with fear throughout your exile. That's for the whole length of your life. That means that there are not parts of your lives that are open to the fear of God and other parts that are closed because he sees and knows all. He is the righteous, impartial judge. And that should motivate us to live a holy, reverent, honoring and respecting life of a holy God. Because we've been born again, because we've been saved, what are we to do? We're to live a life marked by hope. We're to live a life marked by holiness. And we're to live a life marked by appropriate fear. Now, had Peter stopped there, and had I I stopped there, that's a scary message, right? I mean, that's, you know, praise the Lord, I'm walking out here feeling good kind of a thing, right? No. But that's not where Peter stops. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even break. He keeps right on going. Because to hear the fear of God message is... Is scary. And yes, we should be motivated, motivated by the judgment that will come. But more than that, we should be motivated by the grace that is ours. This is, this is 18, 19, 20, 21. You live this way. You conduct yourselves this way. Because God is your Father, because He's an impartial judge, you live a life of fear, but you do that, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You live this way because you are God's. Because you've been bought with a price, with an imperishable payment, that of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Live in fear of God. But do it knowing what God has already done for you and what God will do for you. This is the greater motivation. 
that's what we'll pick up next week. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.